Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Ben Allen, and for Scott Lamar. The opioid crisis has only gotten worse in the past year. Later, we'll talk about recovery. What does that look like? And we'll also make the transition to a farmland preservation milestone. And that's coming up. But first, putting a stop to the opioid crisis requires a lot of different solutions. The crisis is a systemic problem. It won't be solved with a handful of initiatives. One of the bigger problems is the shortage of treatment beds. How do you fix that? Well, that's why I've asked Cheryl Dondero to join me. She's the executive director of Dauphin County's Drug and Alcohol Services. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's first lay out uh, the problem. How long has this been a problem? Oh, I think it's been a problem for many, many decades. Um, It has certainly, due to the overprescribing of prescription opiates in the last decade to 12 to 15 years, that we're seeing the results of that in a much higher uh, prevalence rate of overdose both to prescription opioids and to heroin, and as a result of that, heroin and overdose deaths. But let's drill down a little Mm -hmm. bit to treatment beds specifically. Mm -hmm. So... Walk me through the process. When someone comes into your office or calls in or you become aware of a case, how does the search for a treatment bed go? So when someone would contact us for assistance or a family member for a loved one, we would uh, either have them come into the office or if that wasn't possible, we would go to where they are and we would do a screening and assessment both to see um, what's going on with them, what drugs or alcohol they're using, how serious the situation is, and what services they are needing. Usually with the heroin and opioid epidemic, if you are um, heavily addicted to either, that you're going to require both detox and long-term inpatient treatment. It is accurate that there is a shortage of detox beds. Um, The last couple of weeks, initially we might get told, and this is contacting every provider that we have a contract with, that it could be days to a week for a detox bed, same with rehab beds. Um, We have great relationships with our providers, and my staff is also very, very skilled at, we don't give up, we don't take that morning call that there's not a bed till next week. We call back every hour on the hour, and those relationships when a provider uh, bed would open up that they would contact us. So it is definitely a problem. Um, having just retired last year from the State Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs, I still have a lot of contact with them, and they have just done a statewide survey of detox capacity, and there was 100% participation. All 55 active detox licensed providers in the state responded. And what it revealed was not a surprise, but it's very alarming in the percentage of daily calls that go um, where people cannot be admitted to detox, the large majority of them are due to capacity issues. That's further a problem for our publicly funded client, our client on MA, because a lot of MA the provide medical assistance, yeah. Medicaid assistance right. in Pennsylvania, that's um, health choices, Right. that uh, the providers that don't even accept that. So that takes our available search even down further to those that accept medical assistance. Right. So let's just kind of take a step back and and talk a little bit about first what detoxification is. Mm-hmm. So detox, so person comes in, as mm-hmm. you said, detox is the first step, then uh, a long-term uh, kind of mm-hmm. treatment facility. At a detox facility, I mean, it is critical that someone gets in that pretty quickly. Very, very critical. And depending on the the drugs that you're using, whether there's multiple drugs being used, drugs and alcohol or alcohol, 
Um, it's, it's funny, a lot of people think that heroin withdrawal is deadly, and while it's very, very horrible and very, very uncomfortable, it's likely not to cause death. Alcohol withdrawal, on the other hand, is very, very dangerous, and probably of all of the drugs of choice, the most likely to result in serious medical implications if you're not medically managed. So detox, the, the doctors on staff would assess the patient, and depending on the drug or drugs being used, there is a protocol for getting that person under very close medical supervision, getting them detoxified and stable. Um, I would like to say I know that people out there that are addicted to opioids, they're afraid of the withdrawal. And I want to say that when you come, almost all of our detox facilities now are using the new um, evidence-based medications to help keep people very comfortable during detox. So I want to say that if anyone's had a fear of, of reaching out for help, that they don't want to go through the withdrawal, that you would be kept very, very comfortable. It's not the detox of the 80s or the detox that you would go through in jail. This is very medically closely supervised, and you're kept very comfortable. So I think one of the big questions that I get from people out um, when, I, when I'm talking uh, to them or even talking to friends about this, I think one of the questions that I get the most is, okay, so there's very clearly a demand for mm -hmm. these services. Why aren't there more beds available? Why aren't there, why aren't there places popping up left and right to, um, to, to serve these people? I'd say this, the short answer is funding. Um, the costs for infrastructure expansion, you know, whether that's a, you know, putting up a new building or expanding a wing, it's also because of the, the licensing requirements of the staff ratio to clients for detox. It's very difficult to even break even let alone, especially when you're talking about the publicly funded client. So this isn't so, a lucrative business. No, it's not at all. I, I mean, it, I think it, there are those places, right. but when we're talking about the average citizen needing services in Pennsylvania, no, it is very much the opposite. It is people who do this work are doing it to save lives, not to make money. Okay. Um, is detox the area where you're most concerned about capacity, or could it be inpatient or outpatient treatment that you're more concerned about? I don't think outpatient at present we're having a capacity issue. At least we're not here okay. in Dauphin County. So the two issues, um, definitely being detox and then rehab beds. So most people who are needle injecting heroin users or heavily addicted to prescription opiates are going to require a longer term inpatient treatment. Um, we struggle with insurance companies. Um, medical assistance is not a problem. Medical assistance thanks to our great state laws, is um, we're not having a problem at all with them funding intense detox, um, short-term, and even long-term inpatient. But we do have a struggle with private insurance companies, you know, wanting to start at 14 days, which, um, this is my opinion, is really deadly. Um, you're getting somebody detoxified, you're not getting them the level of treatment they need, and then they're going back out into the, the world um, maybe doing some outpatient, but it takes the brain, you know, f four to six months to just kind of feel okay and for you to physically not still be feeling those withdrawal pains. Um, but 
even longer till the brain is fully healed. And that's why we're hearing so much about these new medications. Um, we're very excited about Vivitrol, which is a long-acting injectable form of naltrexone that is not an opiate. It's an opiate blocker. So if you get right. the injection, kind of protects you from yourself during that very vulnerable period. Right. This is a shot yeah. that you get once a mm-hmm. month, and it will. It, it's supposed to protect you and remove mm-hmm. a lot of those those cravings and make it actually so that you can't get you can't get high. You can't even exactly. if you do it's take. A, it's a wonderful. We are very excited about the use of Vivitrol in yeah. Dauphin County. Now, it's very expensive, um, but um, I, I know that a lot of people are excited about it. Uh, talking with Cheryl Dondero, Executive Director of Dauphin County's Drug and Alcohol Services here on Smart Talk. We're talking about uh, the shortage of um, treatment beds in uh, Dauphin County and really across the mid-state and all of Pennsylvania uh, as this opioid crisis uh, continues on and, and really intensifies across Pennsylvania. So you mentioned uh, the, the licensing uh, in terms of why it's hard to get more beds um, online. You also mentioned that you make a lot of calls. You make calls mm-hmm. once an hour uh, to try and get people into detox. You know, when someone walks in, um, how long could they wait? How long could they wait? And do you fear that you're losing people in that time? We do. And I, I in Dauphin County, the people that when we talk to somebody, even if they can't get a bed for a while, we put supportive services and supportive contacts in place. So for instance, we would keep in contact with them several times a day to make sure they're doing okay. We might put them in touch with our uh, great team down at Pinnacle Health. Um, We're working very closely with Pinnacle Health on all of this through the um, contacts that we get who need services who come through the emergency room or come through Pinnacle Health Systems and have a a drug-related medical emergency where they might be admitted. So there's lots of things that we can do in the interim, and I just really want to stress that fear of a delay or fear of not getting a bed should never be the reason that you don't reach out for help. We, I, I would say that we are 100% successful in getting somebody what they need as long as they will work with us and let us work with them. Um, we put those supports in place. You know, hook them up with somebody that's already in recovery, as you're going to be talking to later, that can kind of help them. They can be given comfort medications that are not addictive to help them manage the, the withdrawal symptoms until they can get admitted. So there's lots of things that can happen. And I would venture to say, too, that that initial time that we might be given before somebody has a bed or they have a bed date and it might be a week out, I would say it's almost 100% of the time that we get a call that, that there is a bed that opens up sooner. Um, the nature of this illness, people who are in beds in either detox or rehab um, might be leaving against medical advice or might be leaving because their insurance company won't cover them anymore, even though the treatment provider is fighting for additional time. So lots of things happen um, that we feel that those beds do become available and we won't stop until we find them what they need. We're talking a little bit about licensing here. What does it take to get beds licensed to really get something like this up off the ground from the start in terms of licensing from the state, reaching agreements with ins- mm-hmm. private insurance, reaching agreements with Medicaid? There are a, a lot of things that go into this. How long can it take to get something from start to finish? Well, I think that the, I, I know from working at DDAP and Secretary Gary Tennis has worked very hard to shorten the turnaround time between when, when a provider applies for either a capacity increase 
or a new license and getting that turned around very quickly. Once everything is in there and they have everything they need, it's not uncommon for it to be 30 days or less till they can actually be licensed. I think the bigger problem is providers having the resources. Now in Dauphin County, Dauphin County commissioners have invested in a partnership with uh, Gadenzia Common Ground, which is the only detox in Dauphin County, and uh, medical assistance, health choices, and perform care to all of us to contribute to be able to make a significant expansion in their detox capacity here in Dauphin County. But it takes that kind of community partners investment. We also fight with the stigma of, I don't want that in my community. I don't want that in my backyard. So I think some of the time that it takes is because communities, uh, providers have to really work with the communities and with the zoning boards and fight that stigma about having a detox or a rehab in my backyard. Let's take a break here. Uh, Ben Allen uh, hosting Smart Talk in for Scott Lamar. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. You're listening to WITF and Smart Talk. I'm Ben Allen in for Scott Lamar. We're discussing the shortage of treatment beds and ways to fix that problem for people who are addicted to opioids but want to get help. And our guest today, Cheryl Dondero, she's the executive director of Dauphin County's Drug and Alcohol Services. So, Cheryl, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but uh, in terms of the community really stepping up, what does it take to solve this problem? Is it private groups? Is it the state? Is it uh, nonprofits? How, how does this become less of a problem? Well, I think, there is, like you said earlier, there is no initiative or even set of initiatives that's going to solve the problem. I think we have to go at it from from many, many ways. So certainly those uh, community partners are very, very critical. Counties and local jurisdictions partnering with state and federal jurisdictions around funding. Um, Pennsylvania does a little better, but it's, it's no secret that the amount of funding available for drug and alcohol treatment nationally, um, these you know, figures run from enough for one in every seven to one in every 10. We do a lot better in Pennsylvania under Governor Wolf and under um, our Medicaid Health Choices Plan and also our great insurance laws that um, we have in Pennsylvania. So I think it's multifaceted. It's in, it is enforcing the insurance laws that we have on the books, which really for private insurance really mandate that people get the level of care that they need to get better. Also, the Mental Health Addiction and uh, Parity Act, which also says, you know, whatever you need for physical health. No one says you only get two weeks for a heart attack or you only get, you know, that's it. That's all you get. Um, You get what you need to get better. And we have to start enforcing that for our people, our friends, our families, our loved ones that are dying every day from this disease. Um, Community partners in terms everywhere from law enforcement that's carrying naloxone to even being aware that you have a county drug and alcohol agency relationships with your treatment providers. Um, funding is will always come up as a, a big gap in what we need and providers having the support of the community and the resources they need to expand infrastructure. You know, the, 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 lev- the rate of pay for a detox, somebody in detox compared for a hospital stay is so much lower yet the staffing requirements to have how many doctors you need, how many nurses, how many counselors for per person in a detox bed is much, much higher. So it really doesn't make, 
it's certainly not a way you're going to get rich or even make money. It's really in finding a way to break even is is the conversation I think that we mostly have. Um, the prescription drug database went live this week. Right. So this is we are expecting that this is going to cause a temporary surge in need, a temporary surge in people who no longer have access to prescription opioids because they're being identified in the database as getting multiple prescriptions, we know some of those people will turn to heroin. So, But in the long run, I want to stress that this database is going to save lives. We're where we're at because people have been overprescribed for the last 10 years. So as that starts to level off, um, it also needs to have a focus on prevention. You know, we've got to get back in our schools and talk to our kids and do prevention, age-appropriate prevention services at all levels of the K-12 to um, continuum. So it's it's really a, a whole multitude of things that I think that we just need to keep driving at, driving at, and not give up. Yeah, when I think about the, the shortage of treatment beds in in particular, I think that I was I was genuinely surprised when I when I heard from a lot of people that that was what was really um, causing causing some issues. I mean, do you think if there were more treatment beds, there would be uh, fewer deaths? Absolutely, it's a, a direct correlation between the act, the clinically appropriate level of treatment that you get, um, use of these new medication-assisted. Uh, therapies to partner right, with the treatment. Right. There's a direct correlation between that and getting better. Direct. Right. So, um, you think that insurance companies or Medicaid or or, or whatever would cover that? It, the the treatment just there's just so so little available. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. still going to be a struggle. I think with some private insurance companies, Medicaid is great for in Pennsylvania. Yeah. For lengths of stay, um, it's really a capacity issue and coupled with the average person not being able to navigate the system. It's totally carved out from health care. It's not something you can go to your doctor and say, I need to get a treatment bed. Most physicians are not aware. So it's kind of carved out over here how you have symptoms for drug and alcohol addiction and you, you want to get help, but it's carved out of the rest of the healthcare system. So, it's difficult to navigate. So um, before I let you go, Cheryl, um, let's kind of leave people with uh, a hopeful thought here. Where are things going um, in the future uh, when it comes to um, opioid treatment and, and really addressing this crisis? I think it's going in a very positive direction, both from the legislative um, bodies in our nation and in our state. Um, people, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know somebody anymore. So it's now touching every aspect of our community. Um, it is a very suburban, middle class. It's in every school. It's in every community. It's in every facet and walk of life. Um, so I think that has done a lot to help bring it to the forefront. Um, and people are saying, we need to do something. And I think that's across the board. So that's a very good thing. Um, as you said, I want to end on a positive note. Um, you can call our office at 717-635-2254. We'll get you where you need, even if you aren't a Dauphin County resident. We can get you um, headed in the right direction. And I'd like to um, also say that we're in my, our next speaker is going to be talking about recovery. Um, next week, thir August 31st, is Overdose Awareness Day, and that leads us into September, which is National Recovery Month. I am in recovery. I know so many people in recovery. We have to come out and start helping those who came out, who come after us, who need help, like people did for us. 
and that has to that's always going to be how it works somebody who's been there someone who had it done for them needs to do it for someone else and we pass it on and that's how it works so we'll be having a very large uh, 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 commissioners would like to invite you and all your family and friends to Dauphin County's second annual recovery day on Saturday September 24th at the Harrisburg East Mall um, outside and inside the old Boscoff's building we're gonna have hundreds of vendors hundreds of activities lots of information and to hook people who are in recovery up with sustaining that recovery or people who are seeking recovery with the services they need to do that. We will also be having um, a Dauphin County uh, partnered event with the Lieutenant Governor's Office and the Board of Pardons for a presentation on Pathways to Pardons where you can learn how if you are now um, past those three years past your last conviction, living a life of recovery, trying to get your life and your family's life back on track, learn how to um, access the very much simplified and streamlined process to have your record expunged. So we're excited about all that, too, and I'd love to come back and talk to you about that closer to the event. Well, Cheryl Dondero, we really appreciate your time. That's Cheryl Dondero. She's the executive director of Dauphin County's Drug and Alcohol Services. Thanks for coming in today on Thanks Smart Talk. Thanks very much, Ben. All right, so let's bring in Scott Tyre. We were talking a little bit about um, the uh, the hope, Scott, and Scott Tyre is the head of Lancaster County Recovery Alliance. Scott, let me first welcome you to the program. Thank you, Ben. Okay, so uh, we're talking about the hope and, and recovery um, for people uh, who were addicted at one point uh, to opioids. You yourself are, are in, uh, in recovery, mm -hmm. uh, and in Lancaster County, uh, you're a part of the Recovery Alliance and running this recovery walk on Sunday. What is a recovery walk? Well, it basically is what it sounds like. Um, it's part of Lancaster County Recovery Day at Clipper Magazine Stadium on North Prince Street in Lancaster City. And the walk is uh, basically more or less a stroll. Uh, it's, for, it's a celebration. The whole day is a celebration of recovery um, for families, for people who've been affected by addiction, um, and are actively in recovery from addiction. Um, so it's, it's really two-pronged. The first approach that we, or the first way we look at it is the celebration for everybody to just relax, have a good time. Uh, the Lancaster Barnstormers do a very good job of giving us a venue. Um, and the second part of it, and I think this is what the walk accomplishes, is it's about raising awareness and working in our communities to show the communities that um, there's a lot of stereotypes, there's a lot of um, false beliefs about addiction and what it is to, to be addicted to something um, and what it is to be in recovery from addiction. So I think when you see 300 people walking down the street um, full of life and passion and freedom, it shows. And I think that people in Lancaster will look at that and that alone will challenge some of the beliefs that they have, or uh, not, maybe not beliefs, but just thoughts that they have of, um, I don't even like using the word, but quote unquote addicts are like. You know, we're not um, those people, we're not criminals, we're not lazy. Um, you know, we've come through a devastating disease that rips apart families, um, rips apart people's lives for years and years and years. And so a day like this, the Alliance, um, we do it so people have the chance to celebrate the fact that they've renewed their lives through recovery. And that's number one. 
And um, with the help of the Lancaster Barnstormers, we give people, you know, discounted tickets to be able to come and enjoy a day. Um, and we get a lot of sponsorship help um, from places like LGH Wellspan and um, White Deer Runs, another one. I mean, we have many. Yeah. Um, so that's basically the day. So you mentioned one of the messages here is this is what recovery looks like. So what does recovery look like uh, for you or for uh, other people that you know? Um, well, recovery is a lifelong process. There's not a finish line to it. Um, it involves your um, biological, your physical needs. It involves your emotional needs. It involves your spiritual needs. So it's a whole person process. And people that successfully sustain their recovery are people that approach it from that way. And they find their own unique way to recovery. And so as a community, you want a vibrant recovering community. You want that. It, it, it makes your community stronger. And um, the director was just talking about giving back, you know, with the addiction epidemic, you know, and it's bad right now. Um, the people that you want out in front are people in recovery because they know the way through and they know what works. And some of these people are some of the most enlightened people I've ever met. Um, so we really try to get the community to understand that you want people in recovery, you know, as your neighbors, as your friends, you know, you, you, you want to support that. Um, How does that make a difference? Well, it makes a huge difference because I think uh, there's something about people in recovery that eventually you reach a point where you want to serve, you want to give back. It, it's, it's very common with uh, people in recovery. And I know it is with me. It takes, sometimes it takes some time to get there, but inevitably many people do. And um, it makes a difference because you want to give back to your community, your hometown. It becomes important to you that your experience means something to somebody else. And so, um, at least for me, it became very, very important that I went through all of that for me. Yeah. But there's got to be something else that it was meant for. And I feel like it's meant for other people who are coming along as well. Because I can say, look, I've gone there. I've done this. You know, there is hope. There's a lot of hope. And Lancaster, uh, the, the Dauphin County, York, Lancaster, we're full of, it's a full, vibrant community of, re of people in recovery. So so do you think that um, people who are addicted to opioids, to alcohol, to any kind of drug out there, do you think that they take your message more close to heart? They take it uh, more seriously because you have seen what they have seen? I hope so. I hope so, because I know that sometimes finding recovery is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight for me. It took um, a long period of time. But, What's long? Well, for me, it was years. It really, I look at it as a, as a period of, of probably a couple of years to where I started to realize I had a, an issue, a problem, to the point to where I finally got clean. And then there was a period of time where I, you know, I, I say I didn't really go into re take recovery seriously and get my act together with it, you know, because when I first got clean, I also had episodes of relapse, which is also common in recovery. Right. But I had the right supports. I had the right things around me that helped me through that, supported me through that, to then get to a place where I became more and more confident and stronger, and I was able to sustain lasting recovery. 
So if someone walks out uh, to, to Lancaster, they're driving past the Barnstormer Stadium on Sunday, what are they going to see? They're going to see uh, a lot of people who have a lot of energy. And uh, we're going to start around 930. We're going to have uh, the founder of Sober Nation, Tim Stoddard, is going to fly in from Florida to, to just kind of talk to everybody about his experience and about recovery. We're going to have Lancaster's uh, Portal Percussion, which is a percussion band. They're going to come out and do some drumming. We're going to have some yoga, some recovery yoga demonstrations. Um, so uh, we're going to have an art tent where people can design signs. My daughter's going to help with that. Um, so hopefully it's just going to be a lot of energy, a lot of people just having a good time meeting, you know, meeting new people because we're bringing people in from all over the county to come into this. Uh, and then we have the walk down uh, James Street, down College, down Harrisburg Ave, and then we go back for the actual baseball game. So it's a full day. It's a full day. <laughs> yeah, it's a full day. And when you leave that day and when other people leave that day um, uh, on Sunday, what are the, you know, do you feel invigorated? What does it make you feel like? I do. Last year we did it, and I, I, I talked to some folks who said that, you know, that day really carried me for weeks. Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the folks that are coming are coming out of their rehabs. So they're in a 30-day rehab somewhere, and the rehab is either sponsoring the event or has purchased tickets for them to come. So it's, you know, they're going through it right now. They're, they're discovering, they're finding recovery, and that can be, you know, an emotional, um, di- difficult time for, for, for a human being, you know. Uh, Recovery is terrifying at first sometimes, so it's... A day like this is a day to just kind of relax and and let it out, you know. So, um, how can it be terrifying? First of all, you have to learn how to live sober. You you no longer have you know the ability to to kind of I, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons I think that people become addicted to something. Um, I think a lot of times it has to do with something that isn't quite filling you. I have a friend that calls it the hole in the soul. And what ends up happening is you fill it with the wrong stuff. And then it becomes a biological issue many times where your body becomes dependent on something. And then before you know it, you're just in this hole that you can't get out of. And when you take that away suddenly and you're just yourself clean without any of that chemical anymore, um, it can be frightening because you're facing a lot of fears. You're facing an uphill battle. Um, I think you get a sense of, of, of the difficulty that, you know, maybe when you leave rehab, you're going back to because some people have to go back to some pretty tough situations and you're doubting, you know, this isn't going to work. And, you know, and, and there's there's a lot of things that go into recovery. I mean, some like I said, these some of these people that have sustained recovery are some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. And um, and you have, fought against that, too. You fought that battle for a couple of years. You, you, oh, absolutely. Not, you, yeah, absolutely. I still it. It, it becomes easier. I think you become more confident. You become stronger as a human being. Um, but you can never, ever forget that, you know, there's a part of you that you always have to be wary of because it's, it's you know, it's without understanding everything about it, there's just something there that you always have to be wary of. Yeah. What, what, what kind of message do you want to leave with people um, 
who have no idea about this. And this is the this is the group that I always think about, Scott, is as we're talking with Scott Tyre of the Lancaster County Recovery Alliance. Uh, this is this is the idea that I always have. You know, there are people that have no conception of what it means to be addicted or to be in recovery. So what do you say to, to those people um, who don't understand it and may hear it's going to take years and, and say, you know, how can, how can it be so difficult? What do you, what, how, do you, how do you make this relatable to somebody like that? Well, everybody's different. Everybody's different in their addictions and everybody's different in their recovery. It's unique to the person. So my experience is not going to be somebody else's experience. Uh, I can share my lessons and I can share my experience, but ultimately it's going to be that person's journey. I would just be there as a as somebody to walk beside them, which is very, very important um, in terms of somebody's recovery. So the first thing I would say to anybody who, who is either thinking about getting clean or is has just taken the first steps to sobriety is to put people in your life that are uh, clean and strong and perhaps have, have been there and done that so that they can walk beside you. Um, you know, AA and NA are huge supports in the communities for people um, because you're around people like you who have been there and done that. Um, so the first steps are getting clean, you know, just don't use anymore. That's the first step. But also putting people in your life and around you that can help you stay clean. Um, just through their example alone. It just gives you strength. It really does. So uh, we're going to have to wrap it up, Scott, but uh, let's just leave people with uh, the last details again, the the who, what, where, why, when of this Sunday in Lancaster. Well, it's Clipper Magazine Stadium, North Prince Street in Lancaster, right in the front parking lot. Uh, the rally will start at 9.30. The walk is going to kick off around 11.45. All right, that's Scott Tyre. He's the head of the Lancaster County Recovery Alliance. Scott, thanks a lot for joining us today on Smart Talk. Thank you, Ben. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking about farmland preservation now. It's hit a milestone in Pennsylvania, 5,000 farms preserved. So what does that mean and what's in store for the future? Here to talk about all of it is State Agriculture Secretary Russell Redding and Doug Wolfgang, Director of the Bureau of Farmland Preservation. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me on Smart Talk. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. Thanks Thank you, a lot. So, all right. So let's first start with the basics. Farmland preservation. How did it come about, Secretary? Yeah, you know, there's an interesting history in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, you have to look back almost to the to the 1960s and 70s when you began to see, uh, you know, a lot of development, uh, a lot of loss of land. You know, there was a point in Pennsylvania's history where we were losing 300 acres a day. Uh, so you think about what that meant uh, from, you know, from a public policy standpoint. What did it look like in your communities? And and you had folks re responding to it. And I say folks responding. It wasn't simply about the agricultural community responding. Uh, the public was concerned about it. So, you know, through the 1970s, early 80s, a lot of discussions about what what is happening to our land and what's the future look like. Uh, the outcome of that was a legislative move to uh, create in Pennsylvania. Um, a, a program called uh, Farmland Preservation, and uh, very proud of it because it's it it permanently 
protects those prime agricultural lands, and that's a distinction between Pennsylvania's program and some others, is that this isn't subject to, you know, a governor or a legislature or a board of commissioners. Uh, it really is a permanent protection of land. And uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, an interesting piece of history is the League of Women Voters uh, led the effort in uh, 1987 to have the ballot initiative uh, placed and then supported it very publicly. So you think about this contrast, right, of, of agriculture and then the League of Women Voters, uh, how broad the coalition was to protect our prime lands. So what um, what would happen if these lands weren't, weren't protected? Well, you look around the community, and I think all of us uh, appreciate, um, you know, uh, you know great assets, uh, productive assets. Uh, I've thought a lot in uh, the past week, and particularly listening to your show yesterday around the National Park Service and the Centennial. You know, 100 years ago, uh, you know, there was this effort to protect these vistas and prime lands and, you know, really unique assets of, of American landscape. Uh, you could make the same case here that we have taken a step that's going to protect these prime lands and key vistas, and in this case, very productive agricultural lands, which are unique to Pennsylvania. So 100 years from now, we'll look back and say that was an incredible smart thing to do. Doug, let me ask you, what does it mean to actually preserve a farmland? Walk me through kind of the, the whole process and what it means sure. to put a land into preservation. Sure, Ben. So in Pennsylvania, a property ownership is sort of like a bundle of rights. And we, the state, the Commonwealth, and the 58 participating counties are just purchasing the right to develop it for other uses. The farm owner retains the property ownership and uh, continues to use it for agricultural purposes. Uh, we partner, as I said, with 58 counties. Uh, and the counties each have individual boards that make decisions at the local level. Uh, applications are received by the counties. They're ranked uh, according to their ability to be developed to other uses and their conversion uh, factors. And then eventually uh, the highest ranking farms come before a state board. Um, you know, there's an appraisal process that's done first at the county level. Uh, to determine that easement purchase price. Uh, the county board will make an offer to purchase the development rights based on that easement value, which is the fair market value minus the agricultural value. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, the highest ranking farms uh, are made offers for purchase by the counties and eventually comes to a 17-member state board, which is administered by the Department of Agriculture. Uh, and then at that point, the state board will approve that easement recommendation and uh, the county will go to settlement with the farm owner in the future uh, sometime shortly thereafter and then there's a permanent deed restriction that the farm owner would sign that would uh, require the property to continue being used for agricultural purposes in perpetuity and the key there is in perpetuity uh, it's a it's forever it's a, a large <laughs> investment that the commonwealth and the counties are making to assuring that the land will be in production uh, for future generations after the current generation is no longer here are there any farmlands that you know, you look at uh, as you've been a part of this program and say, man, that if we didn't save that land, that would be prime for development. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Ben, with the, the scoring system is designed to target those farms that have the best soils and have the greatest threat of development pressure and also the ability to cluster with other farms that are in the ag security area or are preserved. Uh, and have the supporting ag infrastructure. So, yeah, with all those features, and it just so happens in Pennsylvania, those farms that are, have the best soils are also uh, the most threatened for development. Uh, so, yeah, we could give story after story in, in each county in, in southeast, south central, and across the state where that's, a, that's the case. So, Secretary, um, money. What kind of costs are associated with farmland preservation? Yeah, so you have a couple of... Uh uh, pieces to this. One is the, the state's contribution to the easement. 
Uh, and we have, in round numbers uh, since 1987, uh, put about a billion dollars into uh, the easements. So we're talking about 5,300 easements that have been purchased. Uh, you know, a significant piece of our contribution hour being public uh, has been through our counties. Uh, they've contributed, uh, you know, $450 million uh, over the course of uh, 25 years. You know, a piece that we don't count and uh, an opportunity this week to uh, remind all of us uh, that the, each of the individual farms make a contribution to the easement because they're not, in, in most cases, accepting 100% of the appraised value. They're accepting 80% and, and, and many times less, which amazes uh, amazes me, right? So you have of the total... Uh, if we have spent 1.3, 1.4 billion, uh, at least 20% more uh, would be uh, have to be on the balance sheet to recognize the farms making personal contributions. These are individual owners that say, you know, I want to do this for the good of Pennsylvania going forward. That's exactly it. And and every time in the state board that we say yes to uh, approving one of the farms, you look at the numbers uh, that are on the summary sheet, and there's always a balance. And that balance is a direct contribution of individual landowners to the easement. So not only are they forfeiting a right of development for uh, you know, perpetuity, uh, they're also making a personal contribution. So it speaks to their commitment and the family's commitment uh, to, to farmland preservation. I mean, it's got to be a, a pretty emotional decision for some people. These could be farms that have been in generations for, for a family. I mean, how, walk me through that. Yeah, so uh, you know, it's interesting you say that because the we, we can get caught up in the program, you know, yeah, the policy, yeah. the numbers. At the end of the day, you know, it's a very personal action of individual landowners. And I think of ourselves, you know, do, would, would we make the decision, uh, you know, to commit our own sort of house to a permanent easement of some type? That's what these farms are doing. Uh, so that we, we, we speak in terms of a covenant uh, between the public and the landowner, and it really is that because it's, it's far beyond sort of the simple protection of an asset. It really speaks to the, to the commitment to uh, seeing that farm remain a productive agricultural asset for the future. Uh, they are, by uh, this generation's actions, making decisions about all future generations to own that land. Uh, that is no small ask, right? Uh, and we've had 5,000 families do it. We have another 2,000 families on a waiting list that are also prepared to do it, uh, just lacking funds at the moment to do it. So it, it really is important um, important to note that the personal actions here, I think, speak volumes for how those farms see their own future and what they really want to see happen with the asset that they've spent a generation or generations um, developing. The farm that hosted us on uh, on the, for the 5,000 farm in Wednesday in Lancaster County, they are 10th generation. Wow. So you know, that family, you know, they've purchased a neighboring farm, and, and you know, but the farm itself as a business enterprise has been here or will be here 10 generations. That's hard to fathom. Yeah. It's, it's hard to fathom. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking about farmland preservation with State Agriculture Secretary Russell Redding and Doug Wolfgang. He's the director of the Bureau of Farmland Preservation. So, Doug, as the director of, of this bureau, um, what's it like to be able to say you've hit 5,000? Wow, that's such a tremendous milestone. I mean, if, for people who have been involved with the program for a long time, to think 5,000 farms and think 525,000 acres 
are preserved in perpetuity more than any other state in the nation. Uh, it's a great source of pride for anyone who's involved. And uh, the key to the success of the program has been partnerships. We partner with, you know, the farmers who uh, who offer to sell the development rights and with the county boards locally and with the county commissioners who contribute funds and with, uh, you know, members of the General Assembly who've always given us support. And uh, at all levels, there's just uh, the public, you know, overwhelming public support. Uh, so you put all of that together and uh, realize that we've reached this milestone because of those partnerships. So There's got to be some tough conversations in there. I was thinking about the family, but also, I mean, I wonder about counties. You know, mm-hmm. counties may be foregoing tax revenue that they could get if there was development on those, on those, on those lands. How do you have those conversations? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a real value, an economic value, to having farmland, agricultural land, as Pennsylvania's you know leading economic endeavor is agriculture, uh, and to invest in the future of that industry is very important too. And I think counties recognize the significance of that. Uh, you look at uh, looking at property taxes in a, in a taxing body, a school district, a county, a municipality, farmland contributes far more in tax dollars than it demands in services, uh, you know, police, fire, et cetera, uh, compared to his residential counterparts. And so uh, there's a real value uh, to taxpayers to having farmland in their taxing districts as well. You hear that, county commissioners? <laughs> <laughs> I, I that's a great point because I think the what, what we have encouraged uh, in the legislature saw when they set the, the program up is really local control. So counties have to make an intentional decision to have a program. Uh, and in that discussion, uh, we, we always encourage them to look at the agriculture preservation as part of a comprehensive plan. So, again, there's some decisions about where it is that they want to see certain growth act- activity occur. Uh, but we have been impressed across the state with the local commitments that have been made, and certainly where you have uh, you know, the, the uh, significant development and loss of prime land occurring, counties have responded with their own bond initiatives and investments, and that's been the yeast that has helped raise the both public profile of, of uh, farmland preservation, but also raise the uh, state resources. And a little bit on that topic, how do you balance preserving farmland, which I don't think anyone would say they are against, um, with making sure there is adequate land available for development, which is needed for jobs and economic activity. Yeah. It, it's it's uh, it, like, like most of our lives, it takes a lot of balance, right? There's things that we want. We want the jobs. And uh, just driving through Lancaster County the other day, since that was the host uh, county and host farm, you know, they done, have done a phenomenal job of finding that equilibrium you know, between sort of preserving and protecting prime land at the same time, you know, recognizing there's also a need for jobs and services and infrastructure and things that we would want to have a, a really robust community and a, and a high quality of life. They've, they've figured that out. So I always point to them as a way to say this is possible. It's not simply uh, one or the other. It's the balance between, you know, the multiple um, expectations we have as, as consumers in our community and for the quality of life. And, and it can be done. I think the, the real challenge is in uh, making sure that the decisions are very strategic decisions today because of the, of the deed restriction. There's no going back. And, and you cannot go back. That's a family decision, decision. It's a county decision. So you're forecasting forever what it is that farm and that land is going to do. In the deed, uh, speaking of families, in that deed, there is a requirement that the land remain a productive agricultural asset forever. 
that's a high requirement because that's saying both the land itself has to remain available and open, but it's also saying it's got to be a business enterprise. And that for us, I think, as we look to the future as a state, we've made uh, very good decisions in terms of the land. We now have to think about the farm families and those transition to farms from one generation to the next. It carries an extra burden for us. So the conversation about how to preserve and when to preserve is only the beginning. That conversation has to continue on today is how do we keep those businesses and farms viable. Yeah, because I, I remember in, in my time in a previous job in, in Oklahoma, a, a shortage of farmers. There is my generation. I'm a millennial. Um, my generation isn't necessarily stepping up in the way that the past generations did. So how how do you have that conversation? Yeah, and D- Doug can jump in. I think one of the uh, things we've done here uh, in the last year is recognize that uh, we have a great program, very proud of the Farmland Preservation Program. We've just uh, uh, have just structured a, uh, a resource center for preserved farms that really becomes that portal to working with those families, both in terms of transition teams, uh, financing for new enterprises, uh, farm succession planning, discussions that have got to be facilitated and really trying to put a support group, if you will, around each of these farms to say that uh, we have a vested interest in their success. And and that uh, had always been sort of a a point of interest for us, but our primary focus was on preserving the action of preserving the land. Uh, So with the milestone of 5,000 farm, I think our own sort of views have now shifted to say it's both an action of preservation, but it's also uh, uh, an action of um, a succession and success of that particular farm operation. Yeah, Doug, what you hit the milestone five thousand? What's it going to take to do another five thousand? <laughs> well, we certainly, you know, we have the the interest there that boy, the farming community, even after we've preserved uh, five thousand farms, was, you could roughly two thousand farms that remain on county backlog lists. Uh, we can have continued funding, which we've been very fortunate. We have dedicated funding sources of cigarette taxes and environmental stewardship money that we can anticipate every. Uh, every year, and so as we move forward, and we keep, uh, you know, making offers to preserve more farms, uh, the interest keeps growing, and so we think that uh, if the if we can maintain public support and support by the farming community and the partnerships we have with counties, that will. Uh, we'll certainly continue to be successful in our efforts. When you're driving through Lancaster or wherever you're you're driving through, I just think of Lancaster because of the event this week. Are you pointing out and saying, "Oh yeah, that I remember that farm and I remember we, those deals"? You know, and, it's amazing. We can drive in pretty much 58 counties throughout the Commonwealth, 57, and point to farms that we've uh, we've had some hand in preserving, and it's such a good feeling, and it's a, you know very rewarding for us as an agency and for me personally. So, are there yeah. families or farmers that you keep in touch with? And, and oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, on a multitude of issues. Yeah. Um, so, um, Secretary, uh, what would you say to someone who wants to get that 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 farmland preserved? And here's about the 2000 farm backlog, and wants to get in line. What's the next step for them? Yeah, so first of all, uh, you know, uh, I would say make sure that, that you're talking in, with your family. And about a minute left. <laughs> about a minute, yeah. So they should have the conversation uh, with the family, talk to their county farmland preservation program administrator. Uh, you know, begin to think about that really early on. I mean, one of the lessons here is it takes some years in some counties to get the farm preserved. So it's not going to be a tomorrow action, right? So be thinking about the future. All right. Well, 
I want to thank everyone for coming in today. Thanks especially uh, to our guests just now, State Agriculture Secretary Russell Redding and Doug Wolfgang, Director of the Bureau of Farmland Preservation. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been an honor. Thank you. you. All right. Thanks to our guest today, Cheryl Dondero. She's the Executive Director of Dauphin County's Drug and Alcohol Services. Scott Tyre, the head of the Lancaster County Recovery Alliance. And State Agriculture Secretary Russell Redding and Doug Wolfgang, Director of the Bureau of Farmland Preservation. On Monday's program, Scott Lamar returns.